The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory Glory to to you, you, Lord Christ. Christ. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. It's a delight to have each of you here with us this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you and acceptable to you through Christ our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. Today is Pledge Sunday. It's not just Halloween. It is Halloween. Happy Halloween. It's also Pledge Sunday. We're wrapping up a capital campaign. So far, over 60% of our, the households here at All Saints have participated, and so thank you for that. We're also finishing a sermon series on Jesus' parables in the Gospel of Luke, we've been using these parables to try and re-envision our church, our, our identity and our mission as a church, and to say this is who we are in a representative sense, but also this is who we are in an aspirational sense. This is who we want to be. And today we have these two short interrelated parables that were just read for you, that of the mustard seed and that of the leaven. And when I read these parables, I often think about this passage from Marilyn Robinson's novel, Home. Let me read it to you. She writes, how to announce the return of comfort and well-being except by cooking something fragrant. This is what their mother always did. After every calamity of any significance, she would fill the atmosphere of the house with the smell of cinnamon rolls or brownies or with chicken and dumplings. And it would mean this house has a soul that loves us all no matter what. It would mean peace if they had fought and amnesty if they had been in trouble. It had meant you can come down to dinner now and no one will say a thing to bother you unless you have forgotten to wash your hands. And her father would offer the grace, inevitable with minor variations, thanking the Lord for all the wonderful faces he saw around his table. I love that quote. I hope it's true of our church. Marilyn Robinson, you may know, is a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist and she's a a devout Christian as well. And home is her story of a widowed and ailing Presbyterian minister. I'll be there at some point. I just turned 46, not quite, but I'll be there at some point. It's the 1960s and they have two children who have lived very difficult lives. The daughter is named Glory, but she isn't glorious. She's lonely and she's bitter. She's quit her job to come home to care for her ailing father. She's never married because she had a long affair with a married man who always promised to leave his wife and then did not leave. And then there's Jack, who's the son, and he's always been the problem in the family. He's been homeless, he's been in prison, and now he's back. And he's an alcoholic. He was sober for a while, but he's drinking again because he's in love with a black woman and her father won't accept him. It's the 1960s. And his father, the Presbyterian minister, is a white man who's not in favor of all aspects of the civil rights movement. And the point with these two characters is that neither Glory nor Jack have a home in this world but they're hungering for one. And what their mother would always do is to fill the atmosphere of the house with grace. She's now gone. 
So it raises the question, are we like this as a church? And even more specifically, what does God desire the church to be? So two points this morning to try and answer that from these parables. What's wrong with the world, number one? And then secondly, how God works in it. So first of all, what's wrong with the world? And not just the world in general, but also us as people in it. And I think what these images become tell us, and they give us one way to look at what's wrong with the world. This grain of a mustard seed becomes a tree. Verse 19 says, a large tree, large enough for the birds of the air, for birds to make their nests and their home in it. And then leaven, after being placed into three measures of flour, becomes bread. So a tree and then bread, and not just a little bit of bread, but a lot of bread. Three dry measures is equal to 36 quarts in liquid measurements. A quart is a fourth of a gallon, so nine gallons of flour, which would be enough to make a ton of bread. Not literally, but at least enough to feed well over a hundred people. And so these two images become a large home and a massive meal. And that's what's wrong with our world and even with us. It's that the world doesn't offer either of these a large home or a massive meal in any truly satisfying and lasting way. In other words, all people in this world wander and starve, either literally like the Haitian refugees and immigrants who are crossing the, the sea to try to come over to South America and are trying to make their way up through Mexico here. They're, they're looking for a home. They're starving and looking for a home. And it's true not just here in Haiti and South America, but all over the world and places like Africa and so many places. But every one of us, even though we might not hunger and wander literally, we know what it's like spiritually. Because you can't live in this world and not know what it's like to wander for a home and to hunger for a meal that you do not have. And so ask this yourself this morning, how are you hungering? And how are you wandering? Are you in any way like Glory or like Jack? Marilyn Robinson's latest novel carries on these themes of hunger and wandering. The, the title of her new novel is just simply Jack. It tells the story of this son who's always been the problem. And it, it fills in all the gaps that the other about his life that the other novels create. It describes how in detail Jack, this white, homeless, alcoholic, former Christian who's now apostate and now criminal, and Della, an educated, prosperous, faithful, beloved Christian black woman could fall in love and get married in secret in the 1960s. And what would happen? And Della makes this comment on their secret wedding night. Della told him at their wedding supper that when she was a child, there was an old man in her father's church. She also was a pastor's child. An old man in her father's church who had retired from the railroad. She asked him if he had ever been to Wyoming. He nodded. Nothing there, he said. Just a bunch of half-wild white folks doing whatever they dang well please. Kind of reminds me of my hometown. Just a bunch of half-wild white folks doing whatever they dang well please. No need to leave Memphis to see that. You got no business with Wyoming, she said. Well, it's part of America because she had read about it in school. He said, it is, you ain't. Marilyn Robinson, I think, is tapping into what many African-Americans have been saying for a long time. And that is that they, that they live in this country and in this culture, they aren't really at home in it because racism is real. And they historically have not felt or been welcomed by and large. She's putting her finger on what I think has been behind much of the race-related protests over the last several years, whatever form they may have taken, whether kneeling at the national anthem at sporting events or the marches after the deaths of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and others. And regardless of what you may think about that and the various details of all of that, all of us know what it's like 
It's not just the the African-American community who knows what it's like to be at home, but not be at home or, or to, to be a part of a people, but not really fully a part of a people. And some of you children know what that's like at school. You go to school and you're there a lot, but you don't feel at home in that school with those students and children around you. Or maybe some of you feel like that in church. Maybe that's why you're at this church, because the last church that you went to, you were at home, but not at home. Maybe you feel like that in our church. And if you do, I sincerely, I'm so very sorry, because it's just wrong, especially here. But some of you feel like that in a family. You're part of a family, but you're not really a part of a family. So it's not just the black community that feels like this in our country, in our culture right now. Increasingly, I know many of you, simply because your Christians feel like this because of all the changes that are happening in our increasingly secular and post-Christian society, all the theological, social, and moral convictions and beliefs that are changing. You look at the culture and the country around you, you say, I used to know this place. I used to know this country. I used to love it, but now I don't feel like I'm a part of it anymore. And it feels like as though what the African-Americans have often experienced is now being said of us as Christians, that this is America, that this is a part of America, but you ain't a part of it. Not anymore. Let me ask you, is that entirely bad? Is that entirely bad for us? Because if we as Christians are less and less fully accepted in this country, in this culture, maybe we'll feel the need and the longing for the kingdom of God more and more. And even for the church as the primary outpost and primary sign of the kingdom of God in this world. And I wonder if that's why the church has always been so central to the black community throughout our country's history, because it's the home and the meal that they've always longed for, but never received anywhere else. And maybe we have something to learn. So let me ask you again, are you glory or are you Jack? Are you home, but not home? Eating, but still hungry. Trying to satisfy your soul on things, usually good things, things that simply do not satisfy, whatever they may be, whether sex or job or marriage or a spouse, a spouse who's not really a spouse or on resentment or on a past wrong. You can feed your soul on that. It'll twist you, but you can feed your soul on it or on a political agenda or on money or on your own goodness or your children's success or their performance. Please listen to me here. I want you to hear this. And that is that everything in this world other than God And anything you have in this world apart from him will at some point become to you like Leah in our Old Testament was to Jacob. And in the morning, did you hear it? And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. It's one of the saddest lines in all the scriptures. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. And all of us will know those words at some point. Eventually, everything that we make Rachel in our life and in this world will become Leah to us in this world and in this life. Anything. And what Jesus is saying here in these parables is it's only in him that you can find true rest. It's only in him that you can find the true nourishment that your soul needs. You're wandering, you're starving until you come home to him, until you share the meal that he offers. You will wander and you'll starve. And some of you are. Some of you are this morning, even though you have everything in this world. You have, you have had every Rachel that your heart has ever been set upon. You've always had it and you're still wandering and you're still starving. And some of you have had, no, have had nothing in this world. Everything has been Leah to you. Everything has immediately turned into Leah for you, but you're still wandering and you're still starving and you both need the very same thing. 
You need the kingdom of God and you need the church to be the means by which the sign and the outpost of that kingdom because Jesus is the way to it. So that's what's wrong. And we all know it to some degree. But here's how God works in this world. It's more like agriculture than technology. So many of Jesus's parables, hopefully you've picked this up throughout this series, so many of them center around agrarian images, things like seeds or sheep or dirt or fig trees or millstones or wheat and chaff or leaven or buying a field or buying oxen, all of these agrarian images. And that's a problem for us because we're not an agrarian people anymore. Beginning of the 19th century, 85% of America, you know, the very beginning of our country, the vast, vast majority of people all worked in agriculture, 85 to 90%. By the time of the Civil War in 1870, they dropped to 50%. Now guess what it is? 1%. 1%. But now 85% of Americans do what? Live in cities. 18, in 1950, it was just 60%. Now it's grown to 85%. By 2050, it'll be well over 90%, all living in urban areas. And cities, as we know, are places of technology, not of agriculture. There is a massive difference between planting seeds and sending emails. And we send lots of emails. We plant very few seeds. Speaking of seeds, can, can y'all see these from the back? And they're small, which is kind of the point that I'll make here in a second, but they're acorns. They're acorns from a burr oak tree. And these actual three acorns were in a video that we sent out to you earlier this week. And I want you to know the story behind them. And that is in 2009, a dear and precious young girl from our church, a young girl named Alden Malakowski died of leukemia after an 18 month battle with that disease. And she was just 13 years old. One day after her death, another family, the Hughes family, Lewis and Anne and their children, they planted a seed. They took a burr oak acorn, just like one of these and planted it there on their property in Taylor, Texas. And they did so because Lewis had heard Martin Luther say at some point, not literally because he's been dead for 500 years, but heard him quoted saying, they asked him, if Jesus was to come back tomorrow, what would you do today? And he said, I would plant a tree because that tree will last into the new heavens and the new earth. And, and so he would plant a tree. And Lewis decided to plant an acorn as a sign of the coming new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, and also of the resurrection of the dead in the new heavens and the new earth as a sign of that which is true and will be true of Alton. And so they planted that seed and for seven years it grew and they didn't tell anybody. This grew there in Taylor, Texas. And then when we brought this, bought this property and built this campus, they told a few of uh, the staff about it and we planted that tree, which had grown into a little sapling right over there in between the chapel and the two-story building. Uh, and then a few weeks later, they asked the Malakowskis to come to the property and they showed them Alden's tree, which they knew nothing about. And now it's 12 years old and it's still growing. It's over 20 feet tall. This year it reached above the canopies for the first time. And friends, that is how God works. That is the way in which he works, slowly, steadily. He works that way. It's like agriculture. So let me give you four words that describe God's ways according to our parables. First of all, small, very much like these acorns. Jesus doesn't say a mustard seed. Did you notice that? What does he say? He says the grain of a mustard seed. A mustard seed, it takes 750 mustard seeds to equal one gram of weight. So how small is the grain of a mustard seed? You'd hardly be able to see it if you held one in your hands. And that's the way that God works in this world. He starts small and his work always retains some of its smallness. Smallness is especially what connects these two images. They're, they're small agents, 
agents of smallness that eventually have significant end results. And so friends, never dismiss, never denigrate, never dismiss the seemingly insignificant acts of grace from God to you or from God through you to others. Like briefly daily reading the word, God's word, on a daily basis with yourself, by yourself, with your children. It's just a few moments in an otherwise very, very long day, but over a lifetime, what's the impact? Or weekly spending an hour in worship, which has been so difficult over the last couple of years with COVID, and it's been difficult for many people to come back from that. But it's one hour or so in an otherwise long week doing very seemingly insignificant small things, like kneeling down to confess your sins or kneeling down to examine your life. Or, or to ask for God for the grace, not simply to forgive you, but to give to you that you might be able to forgive others. Or walking forward to, to kneel down, to, to drink just a little bit of wine and to eat just a little piece of bread. Seemingly insignificant, small things, but what's the impact over a lifetime? Or what's the impact of turning to someone in worship and introducing yourself to them because you don't know them and inviting them to go and to have a cup of coffee with you across the courtyard? What's the impact of that? or of making someone a meal because whatever's going on in their life right now, they just can't get to it and you take it to them in their home. I would argue that maybe the most significant ministry in our church over the last 18 years outside of worship is that of our care calendar ministry. When people just sign up to take a meal to someone who needs a meal. I can't tell you the countless times that people have come to me and said that, when someone from your church did that, that ministered God's grace to me in profound ways, ways that made me stick, ways that motivated me to get more involved and more connected at the church. So never dismiss, never dismiss those seemingly insignificant small acts of God's grace that grow into massive things. So the first word is small. The second word is hidden. Season 11, they're not only small, but they also operate unseen beneath the surface. And that's always true of the kingdom of God. It's always true of the kingdom of God in your life. You are if you are in Christ, you possess far more than you apprehend and you'll ever be able to articulate, but it's there. In verse 19, Jesus used a very predictable verb when he talks about the seed, it's sown. But in verse 21, it's a strange verb. He says that this woman takes, having taken leaven, hid it in three measures of flour. Now, I'm not a cook. If my wife were here, she'd tell you I'm not a cook. But I know you don't hide leaven in flour. You put it in there, you mix it into there. So why does Jesus use this strange verb here. Apparently it's because there's a hiddenness to God in this world. And we all know it and it's difficult, but there's a hiddenness to God in this world in the ways in which he works. Just like an acorn, one of these planted for seven years, growing, something was happening for seven years. God was at work subtly, secretly in hidden ways, preparing for the impact that that tree now has today and will have for years and for years to come. But nobody saw it. Nobody heard about it for seven years. And it's not just true of that story, it's also true of my story. I've told you about Donnie and Brenda Hancock before. They're my Sunday school teachers during elementary school. And that Sunday school class, we were a bunch of little hellions in that class. I mean, I cannot even begin to tell you. We once caught an injured squirrel in the parking lot and brought it into Sunday school and let it loose. It was like the country song, let it loose. And that little injured squirrel was fast. It was hard to catch the second time. But the point is, is that it was a long time before there was any evidence of God's presence and work in my life, a long time. Probably not until at least college. And Donnie and Brenda never saw it. They never saw any of that evidence. They never saw any of that fruit. You have, others have, they never did. But apparently 
they trusted that God was at work in and through them in hidden ways because they were the first people week after week, year after year for years to teach me God's word. Squirrels and all, they did it. And that's also true of you, others around you as well. Third word, small, hidden, but thirdly, patient. Do you notice that time passes in both parables? There's nothing instant or immediate about the changes that occur. And notice especially the last phrase here, until it was all leavened. Until it was all leavened. There's patience involved in that. There's patience in growing trees and in baking bread and in changing people's lives. God takes his time with us because he wants the change in us that he evokes and creates to last. You may remember two weeks ago when I preached on the parable of the sower. Do you remember the four soils? Do you remember especially the rocky soil? The primary sense of that soil in all three gospels, in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, is that of immediacy. Luke doesn't use the word immediate, but Matthew and Mark do. In fact, they use the word immediate two different times to describe that soil. Mark doesn't use that word, but he does speak about them believing for a while. That's the phrase, for a while. Not a long while, but just for a while because they're an immediate kind of person and an impatient type of person and a person expecting and demanding instantaneous and dramatic change. And so they're slow with nothing. They're anxious about everything and demanding of everyone, others and themselves included. But God is patient. Will you be patient with yourself? Will you be patient with others? As patient as God is with you. Remember the phrase that's repeated throughout the Psalms. God is, Brent mentioned it, God is slow to anger. He's slow and abounding in loving kindness. He is patient. He takes the long view with you in your relationship with him. And the inevitable and eventual changes that, yes, do come, ones that we don't see immediately, but we do eventually. Be patient with yourself. The fourth and final word, it's not only small, hidden, and patient in the ways that God works, but he's also, fourthly, he's decisive. So you're here this morning. I want you to know you're here this morning because God has acted, because he has been decisive. God has taken you and he has put you here. And most of you are members. Some of you are visiting family. Some of you are new to the church. But if you're a member here, God has planted you here. He has taken you and he has planted you here. There's this phrase here in verse 19 and verse 21, which having taken. It's a little obscure in, in English, but in the original language, it's which having taken. God acts decisively. If you're a member of this church, he's taken you and he's planted you within this church. He's planted you within the family that you come from and the family that you have right now. He's mixed you into the children that you have, the children in your life. He's planted you. He's taken you and he's planted you in the marriage that you have, regardless of what that marriage looks like right now. He's planted you in the neighborhood and in the particular place of work and the people that you work with. He's mixed you into the specific group of friends that you have. And why? It isn't a coincidence. God doesn't act coincidentally. He's decisive. It's not a coincidence. It's not a mistake. And you're not alone where you are and where you've been planted. God puts you there. He's taken us and he's put us here as a church. Again, why? It's not just for ourselves. Not, not in the least. It's in order that he might make us in to a sheltering tree and to a nourishing loaf that the world around us needs. Exactly what these images become. Because here's the gospel and here's where I close. And that is that God the Father took the Son. God the Father took God the Son and he planted him. He took him from heaven and he planted him here in our flesh in this world. 
And then he took him and he planted even further, even deeper in this world. After Jesus living a perfect, sinless, holy life of love and obedience and kindness and goodness and courage, lives that we have never lived, he took him and he planted him even deeper into our very death, the very consequence of all of our sins. And having put him in the ground, having died, put him literally into the ground in the very dust of our death, hidden him within the dust of our death, he raised him up again so that he might place him and put him and hide him in our very hearts. And it changes from the inside out into a people who are for others what he already is for us. And that is a nourishing loaf and a sheltering tree. I've printed a picture for you. It's the very beginning of your liturgy. It's like visual aid day at All Saints today. At the very beginning, there's a picture. It's of this mosaic in Rome at the Cathedral of San Clemente. And notice at the bottom, there's that tree. It's a mustard tree. It's this shrub. And notice that it sends out vines that grow throughout the entire apse of the church there in Rome. And then there's a tree, a large tree that grows out of this shrub. And of course, it's in the shape of a cross and Jesus hangs upon it. But notice what else is there besides just Jesus. All of these birds, the birds of the air, as Matthew and Mark say in their recounting of this parable. And the birds or the birds of the air to a Jewish ear would represent all the nations of the earth all of the Gentiles, all of the outsiders, all those who are unclean and unworthy, all the glories of the world, all the Jacks, all the Leahs, all of them. But here they are all together at rest, at home with the crucified Savior, who's died for their forgiveness and been raised for their reconciliation, not only with him, but with everyone else, all of the others. Jesus has become their sheltering tree. He is their tree. He is our tree. He is our home, as well as our nourishing love. And he feeds us and he fills us. Everyone who's baptized and believes in him with his very life. With the, as Paul says in Ephesians, with the very fullness of God. Which makes us individually and collectively into sheltering trees and nourishing loaves. Into those who are for others what he already is for us. To grow so pervasively in us that we become that. And so by God's grace, would you please seek to more fully become that which God in Christ has already begun to make you into. To shelter others. We shelter others. We feed others, literally and spiritually. Bring them into your homes. Bring them into your small groups. Bring them into our church, into your circle of friends. If If you bring them into those places, they're far more likely to enter into the kingdom of God. And you will be one of those who like Donnie and Brenda Hancock, feed them with what we alone have to offer, which is Jesus. We have the seed and the leaven of the gospel in us. And God is at work. He is at work in you and us. He is at work here in this church. And that is reason to give thanks. So much to give thanks for. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning as I often say, for the privilege of being your people. And Father, we do pray that that we would not dismiss all of the small, hidden, and patient, yet decisive ways that you work in us and in this world. Make us into people like yourself. Make us people who are decisive about you and our lives in you and the life that we have to live for the sake of others before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.